New York, this is Democracy Now! All of this has a really chilling effect on journalists uh, because this threatens our abilities to do our job, to hold powerful people accountable, uh, because it's a way for authorities to look for confidential sources. News organizations and press freedom groups are denouncing last week's police raid of a family-owned newspaper in Kansas, the Marion County Record. The paper's 98-year-old co-publisher died a day after officers also searched her home. The Kansas Bureau of Investigations probing the police raid will go to Kansas for the latest. Plus, Democratic lawmakers are renewing calls for Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas to resign after ProPublica published another bombshell investigation showing that a group of conservative billionaires have showered Thomas with 38 luxury vacations, 26 private jet flights, 12 VIP passes to sporting events, all worth millions. Then to Montana, where a judge has ruled in favor of a group of young people who sued the state in a landmark climate change case. This ruling is just so important uh, in Montana and and for outside its borders. This is such a huge issue. And and for the judge to say that Montana is significantly contributing to Um, global climate change just kind of leaves me with this feeling that um, our actions do matter. We'll speak with one of the youth plaintiffs and the head of our Children's Trust, which has been involved in a string of groundbreaking climate lawsuits. All that and more coming up. Welcome to Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Hawaii officials have started identifying victims of the historic Maui wildfires as the death toll reached 106, with hundreds more missing, if not a thousand. Maui police named the first two victims as 74-year-old Robert Dykman and 79-year-old Buddy Jantak, a beloved musician who once played with bands including Santana. As many survivors express frustration with government relief efforts, communities have set up sites to distribute food, clothes and other assistance to those in need. Meanwhile, Hawaiians are sounding the alarm over outsiders who almost immediately started preying on survivors to buy up land and property around the historic town of Lahaina, which was all but decimated in the fires. Some of the things that's already been happening is realtors are calling families who lost everything, offering them to buy their their property and their home for pennies on the dollar, just pennies on the dollar. So it's pretty offensive to us that people won't even give us the time to grieve properly. And people's mental health health is has been diminished in all of this. They've lost everything. People have lost family members, and for them to have that disrespect to come in and already try and buy things up is out of control. So some of the things that I've been doing is gathering all of our community leaders, getting as much resources as I possibly can at the same table so we can speak on how we can prevent these land grabs from happening. President Biden said Tuesday he will travel to Hawaii as soon as he can, saying he didn't want to interfere with recovery efforts. Tuesday marked two years since the return of the Taliban to power in Afghanistan after a failed U.S. invasion and a two-decades-long occupation. Afghans faced spiraling human rights and humanitarian crises made worse by the U.S. refusing to release billions of dollars in Afghan deposits in U.S. banks. 
and the Taliban's ban on women working in most sectors, preventing the U.N. and other international aid agencies from delivering services and operating in Afghanistan. Women and girls have largely been erased from public life. This is 24-year-old Hosna in Kabul. I didn't think the Taliban would take over the country one day, and after they succeeded, their restrictions on women have increased day by day and caused us many problems. As far as I'm concerned, the victory day of the Taliban is the worst day for the people of Afghanistan. A U.N. envoy has called on the International Criminal Court to prosecute Afghan officials for crimes against humanity over their treatment of women and girls. According to the U.N., more than 1.6 million Afghans have fled the country in the past two years, with Pakistan receiving the highest number of refugees, around 600,000. Meanwhile, tens of thousands of Afghans who are employed by American forces or contractors have been awaiting resettlement in the U.S. or for their visa applications to be processed. Many now say they're stuck in limbo. 18-year-old Mark whose father worked as a guard for an American NGO, lives with 11 other family members in a tiny rental near Pakistan's capital, Islamabad, as they await news of their U.S. visas and dwindling savings. Here we only have one room with a kitchen. Our space is very tight. We cannot go back to Afghanistan. My father will be killed. We want to reach our destination as soon as possible to study there because everything is favorable there. We can neither study nor live here and in Afghanistan. Meanwhile, the Committee to Protect Journalists called on the Taliban to end its persecution of journalists, lamenting, quote, Afghanistan's once vibrant free press is a ghost of its former self. In Burma, at least 32 people have been reported dead after a massive landslide Sunday at a jade mine in the town of Pakan. Several people are still missing while heavy rains have hampered rescue efforts. Burma produces between 70 to 90 percent of the world's jade. Climate and human rights groups have denounced the industry for its destructive impacts on the environment, corruption and the deadly conditions faced by mine workers. Jade mining is estimated to produce billions of dollars in profits for Burma's military regime, with China being a major buyer. In 2020, more than 160 people died after torrential rains triggered landslides in another jade mine in the region. Pyongyang made its first public statements on Private Travis King, the U.S. soldier who crossed into North Korea on July 18th while on a guided tour of the demilitarized zone and has not been heard from since. North Korean state media reported Tuesday King, who is black, fled to the country in order to seek refuge from racism in the U.S. military. Travis King's family has told reporters he'd spoken about the racism he faced as a soldier and called the situation a big nightmare. King had spent two months in a South Korean jail on assault charges was due to return to the U.S., where he faced disciplinary procedures. In Paraguay, Santiago Peña was inaugurated as the new president Tuesday. The former International Monetary Fund economist is a member of the conservative Colorado Party, which has been plagued by accusations of corruption during its 70-plus years in power, with its ruling streak broken only once between 2008 and 2013. Peña opposes abortion and same-sex marriage. In his inaugural speech, he reaffirmed his government's support for Taiwan. Our relationship with the Republic of China-Taiwan is an example of Paraguay's friendly spirit with nations towards whom we have great affection and with whom we feel not only allies but also brothers. We will continue to negotiate with the world without compromising our sovereignty, territory, values and culture. Taiwan's Vice President William Lai attended the inauguration. 
In Louisiana, young people imprisoned at the state penitentiary, known as Angola, and legal groups are asking a federal judge to take emergency action and order the removal of children from the notorious prison. The ACLU and other rights groups say kids, the majority black boys, have been locked up for the past year in abusive conditions on Angola's former death row, an adult maximum security prison with a history of human rights violations. The ACLU says, quote, research shows youth in adult facilities are more likely to commit suicide suffer from sexual assault and experience exacerbated mental health challenges, unquote. Hearings in the case will continue through Friday. In Texas, a woman who helped cover up the 2020 murder of 20-year-old Fort Hood soldier Vanessa Guillen has been sentenced to 30 years in prison. Cecily Aguilar pleaded guilty to helping her boyfriend, soldier Aaron Robinson, dismember and dispose of Guillen's body. Aguilar was the only person charged in Guillen's murder. Robinson killed himself shortly after being questioned by police. Robinson was accused of bludgeoning Guillen to death in April 2020. She'd spoken out about being sexually harassed at the military base, which was renamed Fort Cabazos, earlier this year. Guillen's murder brought global attention to the epidemic of sexual violence in the U.S. military and inspired some federal policy changes and the handling of sexual harassment and assault allegations in the military. Donald Trump said on social media he'll release a 100-page report Monday that would exonerate him, he says, after a Georgia grand jury indicted him and 18 co-conspirators for attempting to overturn Georgia's 2020 presidential election results. The Fulton County Sheriff's Office said Tuesday Trump and his 18 co-defendants are expected to surrender to police and will be booked at the Rice Street Jail. Trump was given a deadline of August 25th to turn himself in. The jail is open 24-7, the sheriff added in a statement. This all comes as the first Republican presidential primary debate will be held next Wednesday, August 23rd. One criterion to appear on the debate stage is a pledge to support whoever emerges as a Republican nominee. Those who otherwise qualify but have not signed the pledge are Donald Trump, former New Jersey Governor Chris Christie and former Vice President Mike Pence, though he said he will sign. If Trump is the frontrunner, they have to support him. In Illinois, a man has been sentenced to 10 years in prison for the arson of a Planned Parenthood in Peoria. Tyler Massingill admitted to using a homemade explosive to set the clinic on fire in January, just days after Democratic Governor J.B. Pritzker signed into law sweeping protections for people from out of state seeking an abortion in Illinois. Massingill will also have to pay $1.45 million in restitution. The Planned Parenthood Clinic plans to reopen in 2024. In education news, Arkansas officials told high schools not to offer advanced placement African-American studies, warning students would not receive credit for taking the course. The Republican governor, the former Trump spokesperson Sarah Huckabee Sanders, issued an executive order in January banning what she called indoctrination and critical race theory in schools. One school affected by the move is Little Rock Central High, where some 100 students were enrolled in the course this school year. Central High was home to the Little Rock Nine, nine black students students who, in 1957, tested the landmark Brown v. Board of Education ruling that ordered the desegregation of schools. On their first day, they were met with angry white mobs and National Guard members. President Eisenhower was forced to order federal troops to escort the students for the remainder of the year. In related news, many colleges in Florida say they're dropping their AP psychology course due to Florida law, which bans discussions on gender, sexual orientation and gender identity. 
Earlier this month, Florida backtracked on a directive effectively banning AP psychology. But educators fear the repercussions of teaching the course, since it would be all but impossible to do so without violating the anti-LGBTQIA so-called don't-say-gay law. And in Oklahoma, the ACLU and other groups are suing the to stop the state from funding the nation's first religious public charter school. The groups say the St. Isidore of Seville Catholic Virtual School will violate rules for publicly funded schools, including indoctrinating students in religious beliefs and, quote, discriminate in admissions, discipline and employment based on religion, sexual orientation, gender identity and other protected characteristics. And those are some of the headlines. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. The Kansas Bureau of Investigations has launched a probe into last week's police raid on the newsroom of a local newspaper and the home of its publisher and co-owner, Eric Meyer. Police seized computers, hard drives, servers and phones. Eric Meyer lived with his 98-year-old mother, Joanne Meyer, who was co-publisher of the family-owned newspaper, the Marion County Record. One day after the police raid, Joanne Meyer died at her home. The paper blamed her death on the police raid, saying it had left her, quote, stressed beyond her limits. At the time of her death, Joanne Meyer was talking about the raid, saying, quote, where are all the good people to put a stop to this? She died mid-sentence as she expressed outrage over what happened. The raid reportedly stemmed from a dispute between the newspaper and a local restaurant owner who accused the Marion County record of illegally obtaining information about a drunk driving incident of its owner. But it appears the newspaper had also been actively investigating Marion Police Chief Gideon Cody over sexual misconduct charges at a previous job in Kansas City. Details about that investigation were on a computer seized in the raid. During the raid, the police chief injured a reporter's finger while grabbing her cell phone out of her hand. Hand. Over 30 news organizations and press groups have published an open letter to Marion's police chief blasting the raid, writing, Newsroom searches and seizures are among the most intrusive actions law enforcement can take with respect to the free press and the most potentially suppressive of free speech, unquote. On Tuesday, I spoke to Sherman Smith editor-in-chief of the Kansas Reflector, a nonprofit news outlet. He describes speaking to Joanne Meyer on the phone as the police raid on her home was taking place. The first call that I made Friday when I found out that this raid had occurred was to the, uh, the home of the, the publisher and his 98-year-old mother. Uh, she answered the phone, actually, when I called, um, but she was very upset. There was a lot of noise around her. Police were rummaging through her house. Um, she was having trouble hearing me, and so she she told me she was going to have somebody standing near her uh, and you know talk to me and and let her know what I was trying to say. And uh, then I heard a voice come on the line that says, "I'm I'm Sergeant So and So," and he had no interest in talking to me when he found out that I was a reporter. And the next day, she passed. Yeah, you know the the Marion County Record reported that. She wasn't able to eat after the, the raid began Friday morning. Um, she wasn't able to sleep that night uh, and early Saturday afternoon. Um, in a conversation with her son, she she apparently collapsed and died mid-sentence. So, Sherman, if you can go back to the beginning and explain what exactly took place. You've got this paper dealing with two stories. And how did this raid happen? 
Yeah, there's a lot of small town drama to unpack here, so I'll try to keep it as simple as possible. Um, there was a uh, an incident in town where Congressman Jake LaTurner, Republican from Kansas, was holding a meet and greet at uh, a, a small restaurant in town. I had invited the media, but when the, the publisher and a reporter showed up from the Marion County record, the owner of the restaurant, Carrie Newell, uh, asked police to throw them out because they weren't welcome. She was not a fan of the paper. Uh, they wrote about this, uh, and I should say that the congressman appears to be a sort of innocent bystander in all of this. Um, the staff was apologetic, came by and did a, a, a one-on-one interview with them later at their office. But as part of the coverage of being thrown out of this, somebody contacted the paper and said, um, you know, I have some information that might be of interest about Carrie Newell. And this confidential source provided information about her driver's license history, a 2008 conviction for drunken driving. Um, which was of interest because she was applying for a liquor license. And there was a question about whether this should preclude her from getting a liquor license. Uh, the paper, a uh, reporter at the paper then typed Carrie Newell's uh, date of birth and driver's license number into a state database to verify the information they were given, uh, did verify the information, but ultimately decided this wasn't newsworthy. Um, in part because they felt like they were being used as some sort of a pawn in divorce proceedings between Carrie and her husband. Um, so they decided not to publish, but they did notify police uh, that they had received this information. Uh, the police chief then notified Carrie Newell that they had this information. Uh, Carrie became upset. She she made some allegations at a city council meeting last Monday uh, that uh, accused the, the reporters of, of some sort of illegal activity. Uh, that became the, the basis for an alleged crime here. The alleged crime is identity theft, that the reporter, by typing her information into the database, would have committed identity theft. I do want to say that all of the attorneys that I've talked to about this say that the reporter's actions do not come anywhere near being a crime. Um, Can I ask you, why, why yeah. did Eric Meyer, the head of the paper, why did he call the police to say he's not doing this story, but he had this information? He told me that he he was concerned the newspaper was being set up, and so he thought police should have that information. And uh, that then became the, the basis for the search warrant that was executed against them uh, on on Friday that's alleging a a crime of identity theft and improper use of a computer. And can you explain what happened to the reporter? Um, uh, the police chief himself ripped the phone out of her hand, injuring her finger. That's right. That's what uh, the publisher, Eric Meyer, told me. You know, they, they came in, they were taking computers and uh, other documents. Uh, the, the search warrant allowed them to take utility bills uh, hard drives, the server that they had uh, for even advertisements, legal notices, that sort of thing. And the police were taking phones away from the personal phones away from reporters in the newsroom. And the police chief ripped the phone out of reporter Deb Groover's hand and apparently injured her fingers in some way. And can you explain the second story that the paper was investigating about the police chief himself, Sherman Smith? When I talked to Eric on Friday, he told me that when the city had hired the police chief, the newspaper received a couple of emails from people who alleged some misconduct at his previous job. I believe he was a captain with the Kansas City, Missouri Police Department. Uh, but the publisher told me Friday that the 
The individuals who emailed them were not willing to put their name to the information and could provide no evidence to support it. Uh, they asked the, the police chief about these allegations. Uh, so he, he was aware that they had received the, this information. But um, the, the publisher, when I talked to him Friday, said he didn't believe it was a credible story because there was no evidence to support these allegations. Uh, and so, you know, it's hard to say. I know he subsequently has told others that he believes this was possibly a motivation for the raid. Um, but I, I just want to emphasize there was a a a clear motivation specified in the the search warrant for why they were raiding the the newspaper office. Uh, it's not clear to me whether uh, the the emails they received about the police chief's past really had anything to do with the raid. Sherman, what's known about the magistrate judge who signed the warrant? Yeah, in in Kansas, magistrates, there are really not any qualifications. They don't even have to be an attorney. Uh, in this case, Laura Villar is an attorney with an active license, a former county attorney in the county over. Um, it was the magistrate judge. I talked to her assistant Friday. Uh, and asked if there could be some explanation for why the judge would sign what appears to be an unlawful search and seizure warrant, but didn't get any response back. Um, you know, we're, we're eagerly awaiting the release of the probable cause affidavit that would have supported the search warrant to try to understand, you know, why any judge of any qualification or not would have signed off on this. Can you talk about what this raid means for other newspapers, for other press outlets, for your own, for the Kansas Reflector. Um, talk about yeah. the significance of what took place. You know, the, the Kansas Press Association put out a an email to members uh, shortly after noon central time Friday that said, we have a an active situation here. And in my newsroom, we, we dropped what we were doing and, and kind of leaped into action because it, it just felt like a brazen attack on journalism everywhere on on what we do and it has a chilling effect because we we depend on confidential sources to let us know what's going on and to give us information and they have to know that we're not going to talk about them and we're not going to give their identity or disclose anything that would put them in jeopardy to anybody else um if if the police in in Marion County are allowed to get away with this it becomes open season on journalists everywhere in Kansas where law enforcement uh, would just need to fabricate a a reason for suspecting a reporter of possibly committing a crime uh, as a justification for taking everything in the newsroom and looking for whatever stories we're working on and who our sources are. Uh, that would effectively prevent us from doing our job of holding powerful people accountable and telling the public things that powerful people don't want us to know. Tell us the story of the Marion County record, uh, the story of the Myers, really, right down to Eric, who's the publisher now, who just lost his mother. Uh, Eric, who was a journalist at the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, who was a professor of journalism at the University of Illinois. Go back to his father and mother. This is a 150-year-old paper, and his father began working there in 1948, worked at the paper for 50 years. Um, the family has owned the paper since 1998 when they bought it to block the uh, the sale to a, a corporation so that they could make it a keep it as a family owned, locally owned newspaper. You know, I think there are uh, papers in, in Kansas and small towns where the economic reality has just decimated the, the ranks of reporters. 
and there are places where police could have raided and found, you know, a single 20 something uh, newsroom employee who was scared out of his mind and didn't know what was going on. And the owner would be a corporation 20 states away. Uh, police picked the wrong newsroom in Kansas to raid because, as you say, this is a, a family owned paper, a publisher who had 20 years of experience at a large newspaper, then 26 years of experience uh, at a journalism program at the University of Illinois is basically running the family paper as a retirement hobby now because it is such a passion to him and has a sizable staff, a remarkably sizable staff uh, for a a town of just 2000. And he is defiant, uh, insisting they will put out a newspaper this week. uh, And they are fighting back. Has the Kansas Attorney General Chris Kovac weighed in? He has not. Um, We asked for comment on Friday. his spokeswoman seemed to be surprised that the situation was taking place, didn't seem to know that it had happened yet. Um, I think the the attorney general's in a, a kind of untenable position for making a public statement because he is statutorily obligated to defend public agencies, including police departments, uh, if there's legal action. So if the Marion County police are sued, Chris Kobach in his office would be responsible for defending them in court. So it's difficult for him to say anything now, knowing that it would then be held against him potentially in court. Sherman Smith, before we go, uh, what has been the response in the town of the raid on their local newspaper? Uh, And is there any push for the police chief to resign or to be fired? I think Kansans just don't like drama. And I think a lot of the people in town, uh, the ones that I've heard from, are just uh, upset that they've become this flashpoint for controversy in a, a major national and, and international story. I don't think they like the attention. The, you know, they like they like having a quiet, sleepy town. And um, that's that's where they're at right now. I don't know that they've formed a, a, an opinion or if there's a an idea of whether they support the chief or not. But I think they they would prefer the story go away. And the police chief himself, has he been speaking out? He has posted on the department's Facebook page. He says he believes the the justice system will be vindicated when all the facts come out. Uh, He and the Kansas Bureau of Investigation uh, director, Tony Mativi, both of them have issued statements saying that the media is not above the law. Uh, which I just interpret as as gaslighting because nobody has suggested that the media is above the law. The reporter in the newspaper have been forthcoming about their actions. The question here is whether police can act outside the law. And the city council? The city council's next meeting will be Monday afternoon, evening, and um, we should get some clarity then. Could they decide whether he remains the police chief? They certainly have the the power to hire and fire the police chief, but nobody has said anything yet to to suggest that that that'll be on the agenda. I understand visitation for Joan Meyer will be held on Friday. A funeral service and burial will be held on Saturday. I think it sounds like from the level of her stress as this was taking place, not only um, at the office, but at her home, that she saw this— uh, as the beginning of the demise of journalism. Is that fair to say, Sherman? Well, I think 
we can say that it's a, a tragedy that somebody who had spent her whole life uh, practically supporting news and, and intimately involved with the local newspaper and the owner of the paper spent the last 24 hours of her life having her home raided by police in a apparently illegal and, and certainly undemocratic attack on the free press. Um, she wondered where the good people supposed to be at right now. Um, you know, it's, it's just a tragedy that that's how her life ended. Sherman Smith, editor-in-chief of the Kansas Reflector, a nonprofit news outlet. He's been closely covering the police raid on the Marion County record and the home of its owners. Coming up, Democratic lawmakers renewing calls for Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas to resign after ProPublica published yet another bombshell investigation. This one showing not just Harlan Crow, but a group of conservative billionaires have showered Thomas with millions of dollars worth of vacations and jet flights and passes to sporting events. Stay with us. Guilty by Barbara Streisand and Barry Gibb. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org, The War and Peace Report. I'm Amy Goodman. Five key House Democrats are calling on the Justice Department to investigate Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas under the Ethics in Government Act. After new reporting reveals, he's accepted even more gifts from wealthy benefactors without following disclosure laws than was previously known. Federal judges are required to disclose gifts worth more than $1,000, including travel. New York Congressmember Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, the vice-ranking member of the House Oversight Committee, wrote the letter to Attorney General Merrick Garland, co-signed by Judiciary Committee Chair Jerry Nadler, Oversight Committee member Jamie Raskin, and Democratic Caucus Vice Chair Congressman Ted Lieu. It reads, quote, Justice Thomas's consistent failure to disclose gifts and benefits from industry magnates and wealthy, politically active executives highlights a blatant disregard for judicial ethics as well as apparent legal violations, unquote. The letter was sent one day after ProPublica published a bombshell new report last Thursday filled with details about a group of conservative billionaires who've given Justice Thomas free trips and gifts. Earlier this year, the outlet revealed Texas real estate billionaire, GOP megadonor Harlan Crow had showered Justice Thomas with vacations, private jets, the purchase of his mother's house and Georgia and tuition payments. Now, ProPublica reports three other business magnates quote, apparently came into Clarence Thomas's life after he was appointed to one of the most sacrosanct positions of power in American government. Of course, they're talking about his being a justice on the Supreme Court. They are Harlan Crow, Wayne Heisinger, 
David Sokol, and Paul Tony Novelli. Reading from the report, their gifts include, quote, at least 38 destination vacations, including a previously unreported voyage on a yacht around the Bahamas, 26 private jet flights, plus an additional eight by helicopter, a dozen VIP passes to professional and college sporting events typically perched in the skybox, two stays at luxury resorts in Florida and Jamaica, and one standing invitation to an uber-exclusive golf club overlooking the Atlantic coast. For more, we're joined by Brett Murphy, reporter for ProPublica, who co-authored their new investigation headlined Clarence Thomas's 38 Vacations, the other billionaires who've treated the Supreme Court justice to luxury travel. Brett, welcome to Democracy Now! We've been following these explosive ProPublica uh, investigations. Talk about the latest, um, how you found what you found, uh, because Justice Thomas is not reporting these, and what exactly they were, and if you believe he broke the law. Yeah, so we started receiving tips after we first published, uh, my colleagues first published about Harlan Crow. We received tips that uh, there may be other patrons in Justice Thomas's life. Uh, it was it, mostly just, you know, he had been here around this time frame, or he knows this person. So we didn't have a ton to go off of um, to begin with. And what we started doing was a lot of uh, just shoe leather reporting. We were calling people in these billionaire circles, in the justices circle, uh, people who worked for them, you know, flight attendants, pilots, staff, uh, waitresses, bartenders, drivers, uh, former, you know, C-suite executives, anyone we could talk to who might be able to shed light on that person's relationship with Justice Thomas. Uh, from there, we just started accumulating evidence, pictures, uh, flight data, emails, we sent records requests, anything we could do to substantiate, triangulate different trips that the justice had been on that were underwritten by one of these, one of these patrons. And to your question about the violations of law, so it's, it's uh, a little murky about what exactly a justice can accept. There's debate around which regulations they follow um, dictating what they can receive in terms of gifts. However, it's, it's, it's much more clear about what their disclosure requirements are. The Ethics and Government Act that you were mentioning earlier was passed after Watergate, and it says that most gifts uh, that any government employee receives, including a justice, um, has to appear on their yearly financial disclosures. They have to say, I received uh, this private jet flight, these tickets to this event, this yacht cruise, and this is the person who gave it to me. This is the source of this gift. Uh, we have all, all 20, all 30-ish years of, of Justice Thomas's uh, financial disclosures, and these trips, these benefactors do not appear on those disclosures. So tell us who these donors are. You have Harlan Crow, who is yeah, the so GOP the mega donor from Texas. Yeah, so the, the three new ones we know of now are David Sokol. He was the former heir apparent of Berkshire Hathaway, uh, Warren Buffett's number two. He left around 2011. Uh, he now uh, chairs a holding company. that They're on top of international shipping, power utilities. He has a private equity firm. Uh, Tony Novelli is an oil magnate from St. Louis, uh, he made his fortune buying, transporting, and storing petroleum all over the world. Uh, and then the third is Wayne Heisinga. Heisinga uh, might be a little more of a, of a household name. He's the billionaire behind Blockbuster, 
waste management and auto nations. He, for a time, he also owned three Florida sports teams, the Florida Panthers, Miami Dolphins, and uh, blanking on the third. But he, he owned three teams at the same time. So you have Wayne Heisinger, David Sokol, uh, Tony Novelli, and, of course, Harlan Crow. Um, did any of these um, mega donors uh, have cases before the Supreme Court? We know that Harlan Crow did. Uh, so what they've had are um, different what are called cert petitions. Uh, Tony Novelli did at some point. Uh, in which uh, a case he was involved in was being appealed to the Supreme Court. However, when exactly that took place in relation to his his relationship and his vacations with Justice Thomas, uh, it's, it seems that that actually happened, that case happened before uh, their friendship turned into a, a vacation relationship. Uh, what each of them has is, is a stake. They have a stake in court cases because of the industries that they're in. Uh, so anything to do with regu regulated industries, um, uh, uh, tax, tax law, tax decisions, labor decisions, environmental decisions, all of these could bear a major impact on the industries in which they work. So to answer your question directly, no, we have not yet found any, any direct cases that their companies have had before the Supreme Court, but mostly just their industries. So... ProPublica reports that financial records from the Horatio Alger Association archives show the group has been fundraising off of an event hosted by Justice Thomas inside the Supreme Court building. Explain, Brett. Yeah, so that's a really unique arrangement. Um, even, even the fact that this is an event hosted by the Supreme Court inside of the Supreme Court building by Justice Thomas— uh, that's very rare. There's not many groups uh, that, who have that sort of access. Uh, and then on top of that, we found that the association, which is a charity group that raises uh, money for, for college scholarships, and it's also a very exclusive um, uh, association for industrialists, wealthy entrepreneurs, all self-made uh, millionaires and billionaires often, uh, they fundraise directly off of this event. They, they charge donors X amount of dollars. If you're not a member, it can be $7,500 for a seat uh, at all the events, including the Supreme Court thing, all the way up to $100,000 for, for a table of 10. This is um, a, a little bit of an unprecedented arrangement. And in, in different judiciary rules and kind of regulations around each branch of government, uh, people are told you are not supposed to do that. You are not supposed to use your position uh, to fundraise, even if it's for a good cause for an association. You're not supposed to use your position, your title, your name to be fundraising for a charity, let alone inside of an actual government building. Brett Murphy, where does Ginny Thomas fit into this picture? The well-known activist, uh, very involved with the whole January 6th um, insurrection behind the scenes, um, uh, the wife of Justice Thomas. She's there. Um, she she's accompanying her husband on several of these trips. Uh, we've seen pictures of her at the vacation homes of these folks um, uh, at the sporting events. So she's present. She's there. What role she has in in organizing them, we don't really know. Uh, but we we know that she has a role in memorializing them. A lot of the pictures uh, that we uh, obtained in the course of reporting were pictures that that she had sent to close family and friends, kind of documenting 
their trips. It's kind of like postcards. Um, so ProPublica has also revealed that Supreme Court Justice Samuel Alito took an undisclosed luxury fishing vacation with Republican mega-donor Paul Singer in 2008, then later ruled in Singer's favor in several cases. Then you have Roberts' wife. This is the chief justice, uh, John Roberts, um, who made something like $10 million from law firms as a kind of headhunter, law firms who have cases before the Supreme Court. Um, so can you talk overall about all that's been found and exposed, and whether in particular Justice Thomas or the others um, would be brought before an investigation, a DOJ investigation, for example, under the Ethics and Government Act, violating that? Or what are the rules? He says that other justices told him he didn't have to. Yeah, so the everything that's out there now, in addition to what you said— um, there's been good reporting on uh, Justice Sotomayor's uh, book deals, uh, her arrangements with universities to sell books, uh, the cases that her publisher has had before the court. Uh, there's been reporting on Justices Breyer and Ginsburg also accepting trips. The big difference uh, that I want to point out between those vacations that Justice Ginsburg and Breyer received uh, from billionaires is that we know about them because— those justices disclosed them uh, on their on their financial filings. That is what the law says you need to do, and that's what the experts told us did not happen in the case of of Justice Thomas. The other thing that's very different about Justice Thomas's arrangement is the volume and frequency of of undisclosed gifts he has received, undisclosed vacations he has received. Uh, we laid out you know our conservative estimates on on the numbers of things now. Uh, uh, the, the, the judges we talked to about this, including one judge who used to sit on the committee that reviewed uh, judges' financial disclosures, he said he's never seen anything like this, that this is an unprecedented amount of largesse for a justice to be accepting, uh, let alone accepting, not and not disclosing. So this is, uh, you know, Justice Thomas's situation seems to be very unique. Um, he's an outlier. In terms of what the Justice Department can do. So there is there is carve-outs in the, in the statute, in the Ethics and Government Act, that say uh, a case can be referred to the Attorney General, both from inside the judiciary, the administrative office. Um, the uh, As you noted at the top here, uh, Democrats have asked Justice to take it up, asked Gar uh, A.G. Garland to take up the case to, to launch a probe. Uh, there's no indication so far that that's actually happened. I asked... Justice Department uh, yesterday, if they have opened such a probe uh, and they wouldn't confirm or deny, they just said that they had received, they had said they had received the, the letter from uh, those Democrats, but we don't know uh, yet if they're actually doing anything with it. Brett Murphy, we thank you so much for being with us, reporter for ProPublica, who co-authored their new investigation headlined, we'll link to it, Clarence Thomas's 38 Vacations, the Other Billionaires Who've Treated the Supreme Court Justice to Luxury Travel. Coming up, we go to Montana, where a judge has just ruled on behalf of a group of young people who sued the state in a landmark climate change case. We'll speak with one of the young plaintiffs. Stay with us. Because I always feel like running, not away, because there's no such place. Because if there was, I would have found it by now. 
because it's easier to run, easier than staying and finding out you're the only one who didn't run. by Gil Scott Heron and Jamie XX. This is Democracy Now!, democracynow.org. I'm Amy Goodman. In a landmark climate case, a judge in Montana has ruled in favor of a group of young people who've sued Montana for violating their constitutional rights as it pushed policies that encourage the use of fossil fuels. In her decision, Montana Judge Kathy Seeley wrote, Plaintiffs have a fundamental constitutional right to a clean and healthful environment, which includes climate. The judge went on to rule, quote, Montana's emissions and climate change have been proven to be a substantial factor in causing climate impacts to Montana's environment and harm and injury, unquote. The case was brought by 16 children and young adults ranging in age from 5 to 22. This is Ricky Held, the lead plaintiff in the case known as Held v. Montana. This ruling is just so important uh, in Montana and and for outside its borders. This is such a huge issue. And and for the judge to say that Montana is significantly contributing to um, global climate change just kind of leaves with me with this feeling that um, our actions do matter. We're joined now by two guests. Olivia Vesevich is one of the other plaintiffs in the landmark Montana climate case, 20-year-old student at University of Montana. She's in Missoula right now. And in Eugene, Oregon, we're joined by Julia Olson, chief legal counsel and executive director with Our Children's Trust. Julia, let's begin with you. Uh, talk about the significance of this case and why Montana? Good morning, Amy. This is a historic decision. It's the first of its kind ever in U.S. history. And why Montana? Uh, Montana is one of the states in our country that has had laws on the books that requires it to promote fossil fuel energy and fossil fuel development at a time when we're in a climate emergency. And their laws also required them to ignore the consequences of that and the ways in which greenhouse gas emissions from those fuels fuel the climate crisis. And so these young people used the Montana Constitution, which protects not just their right to a clean and healthful environment, but also their right to dignity, to health and safety and happiness and equal protection of the law. And they sued the state challenging these laws and their implementation. And in June had a, a seven day trial and we just won this historic ruling saying that, that that legal regime and the conduct under it is unconstitutional. So are the laws automatically struck down, Julia? They are, they're struck down. And not only did the court declare them unconstitutional, but said that the state was enjoined from implementing them. Uh, I want to bring Olivia Vesevich into this conversation. You're one of the Montana youth plaintiffs in a city I hold dear, Missoula, Montana, where my first college roommate was from, went to Hellgate High. Um, Olivia, 
Talk about your response to the judge's ruling. Where were you when you heard? Um, I was out running errands. I was, I'm going on a camping trip to Oregon, actually, um, next week. And so I was out running errands, and I saw an email from Matt Santos, one of our lawyers, and I pulled over off of, like, a busy road, and I just, like, onto a side street, and I just sat in the car on this Zoom call um, hearing the most life-changing news that I've ever heard. So how did you get involved with this, Olivia? How old were uh, you when this case started? And why do you care so much about the issue of the climate and the fate of the planet? Um, I was 16 when I joined this case, and it was because my um, science teacher knew that I was um, deeply involved in climate organization in Missoula. And he heard about this case and he reached out to me and he asked me if I would like to join. And the minute that I heard about what this case was and what it meant for my state and what it meant for the world um, or what it could mean, I immediately wanted to join and share my story of how climate change has impacted me, how it's harmed me, because I think so many youths are impacted by climate change and we don't even know the full extent of it because we have become so used to what climate change means, and that's an, a horrible thing to say. Um, and I think the joining this case gave me hope that I didn't have to be used to any of the symptoms of being implicated um, from uh, wildfire smoke or having to deal with respiratory ish, other respiratory issues um, from pollution or and knowing that this case was going to allow um, myself to share my message, but also to be a voice for the youth, um, because so many youths do not have this option and opportunity to become so, to have their, such an impact on climate change. And I knew that this case was going to be because any time in the United States that we've been granted um, civil rights, that's become that's been from a court case, and I knew that this was a very high likelihood that it would be, and it is. This is particularly poignant, Olivia. This decision coming down this week, in the midst of the worst wildfire in a hundred years in U.S. history in Hawaii on Maui. We're counting the dead now. It's over 100, could be so many more. Your thoughts about this, learning about this as you talk about fires in Montana and Canada and how that affects you? I, my heart is just so completely and utterly broken for the people of Hawaii right now. I am utterly devastated that, um, that they are going through this because it is a fate I would wish upon no one. Um, and that is just one of the most horrible things that I could even imagine. And to know that they're, the recovery isn't even being dealt with in the best way possible is also heartbreaking. And um, yeah. 
Let me ask Julia Olson. You also um, are involved with a case in Hawaii where 14 young people filed a lawsuit against Hawaii and other entities. Explain. So the state of Hawaii has been uh, a leader in climate change in some ways. They have put laws on their books that require the state to decarbonize their energy system by about 2045. And they understand being uh, islands and dependent on the climate system as it has been in the past for their water and their food and their livelihoods, how much they're affected. And what we're seeing with the fire on Maui, um, that's going to be increasing in the, the years and decades that come. And so the problem with Hawaii is their greenhouse gas emissions from their transportation system are increasing. And so these 14 youth in Hawaii are suing the state, similar to the held plaintiffs in Montana, using the Hawaii Constitution, which also protects their rights to a healthy environment, to public trust resources, um, and to health and safety and equal protection of the law. And we have a trial date set for June 24th, 2024, to really put forward the evidence of how the Department of Transportation and the state of Hawaii are making their transportation emissions worse and increasing rather than going in the right direction. And they'll miss their targets. And, and so we're holding them accountable for that. Julia, can you also talk about your case, Juliana versus United States, a landmark youth climate lawsuit that accuses the U.S. government of perpetuating the climate crisis and endangering the lives of citizens? CNN recently published an article titled, Biden is campaigning as the most pro-climate president while his DOJ works to block a landmark climate trial. Explain. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so our Children's Trust has been representing youth on climate and suing governments since 2010. And in 2015, uh, we filed a case on behalf of 21 youth under the Fifth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution against the federal government for its active role in causing the climate crisis. And uh, today, for example, the United States supplies 23 percent of the world's fossil fuels. And under the Biden administration, it has made the U.S. the largest oil and gas producer, um, following on the Obama and Trump legacies as well. And so this case is trying to hold the federal government accountable for its role in causing the climate crisis. The case has been going for eight years. We hit some roadblocks. We had extreme opposition from the Trump administration. And now we're back in the trial court. We're heading back to trial. We hope to be in trial in the spring. But the Biden administration and the Attorney General Garland and Solicitor General Prelogar are fighting tooth and nail, just like the Trump administration did, to stop this trial, saying that it would be a waste of judicial resources. But the Montana case really illustrates that when you can present the evidence, you can have experts on the stand testifying about climate science and the energy transition and the mental and physical health impacts of climate on young people. And then when Olivia and her co-plaintiffs can take the stand and really tell the stories of how they are being harmed today, this is not a future problem, they're being significantly harmed today. And those rise to a level of a constitutional violation. And that's why we need trial against the United States as well. Um, and so we're hoping to get there in the spring. But the Biden administration is trying to stop us.
Um, and if you can just explain in a minute uh, what our children's trust is, uh, how it was founded. Uh, I founded the organization in 2010. We're a, a nonprofit public interest law firm, and we do one thing. We represent youth. We sue governments for their role in causing climate crisis. And we're trying to have government policies really adhere to constitutional rights uh, under the best available science of what it means to protect this, this climate in our world for and future generations. And how specifically do you think this Montana ruling, a huge victory for our children's trust and the young people who brought this case, like Olivia, will affect other cases that you have and others have around climate change in this country? It's a real watershed moment. There's going to be huge ripple effects as other courts start stepping up and and doing their role in our democracy to be a check on the other branches of government. Um, same as when we had our first same-sex marriage uh, ruling that that was a constitutional right, or when segregation was declared unconstitutional. I think this case will go down in history as significant as those. So, uh, Olivia Vesevich, it means you're going down in history as you look forward at the future for all of us. What do you say to those in, in your state, the Republican lawmakers, who are climate change deniers? I say that uh, the facts are there, um, if you look in the science, and I— understand that there are a lot of aspects of, say, coal and its importance in our economy in Montana. But I know that, like, Mark Jacobson testified to, one of our experts, um, testified to the transition to renewable energies and how it's not only probable, but it's feasible and it's possible in our state. And I say that to the Republicans that I love this land just as much as you love this land. We all in Montana use our land so much. They, We go hunting, we go fishing, we go recreating, we go hiking. And everybody, I think, in Montana has this shared connection of love for our land. And this is how my love for this world is manifesting. And Olivia, before we end, uh, you were talking about the Stanford University professor, Mark Jacobson, but um, what do you say to other young people who are interested in getting involved in cases like this? I say if you have an opportunity to do so, do so. Um, there are There's an opportunity for young Californians right now to join the court case. But I say that there are so many other ways to get involved. There are local organizations. I say that everybody should be in a local chapter of a climate organization in their town because that is what this climate crisis needs is local organization across the entire world. Olivia, we're going to leave it there. A very important message. Olivia Vesevich, one of the Montana youth plaintiffs. Julia Olson, chief legal counsel and executive director of Our Children's Trust. That does it for our show. I'm Amy Goodman. Thanks so much for joining us.